We're going to look at verses 19, or rather verse 20 and 21. And uh, if you like a title, the title will be more than you can imagine, or imagining the unimaginable. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I think it's very fashionable to uh, diss the church. I think it's very fashionable amongst uh, non-believers, yes, but sadly, it's also extremely fashionable amongst Christians. And an awful lot of us as Christians struggle because we, we don't see what the church is. In theological terms, what we call our ecclesiology is very poor, and we have a view of the church which can largely be very negative. We don't understand what the church is for, and this is what I think this doxology, which is what it is, it is a, a, a sentence of praise at the end of the first half of Ephesians, and Paul is going to go on and give some practical teaching, but this doxology is telling us what the church is for. Now, for the benefit of those of you who weren't here this morning and those of you who were, you obviously will have brilliant memories and you could repeat this off my heart. But uh, we looked at the first verses 14 to 19 this morning and I just want to summarize that again because the doxology comes in response to that. And basically, Paul in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 has talked about God's power at work saving the Christians, bringing them from death to life, uniting them together in his church. And in chapter 3 and verse 1, he begins, for this reason, and then he interrupts himself for the next 12 verses up to verse 13, talking about the mystery of the gospel. And then verse 14, he comes back to, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. And he prays, and he prays For believers, he prays that we would be given strength out of the glorious riches of God. He prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. He prays that we would know the love that's beyond knowing, the depth, the height, the breadth, and the length of the love of God given to us in Jesus Christ. That we would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And as we saw this morning, what that means is that no matter what place you're in, No matter how discouraged, no matter how depressed, no matter how deep or how concerned uh, everything seems to be going in your life, it means that Christ's love is deeper still. There is no place that you can be and that you can go that leaves the love of Jesus Christ hanging around, not being able to reach there. And as he says that, and he prays that we would know that because in our heads we can know it, we can sing about it, we can talk about it, but in our hearts, in our emotions, in our wills, in the way that we perceive life, we can find that very difficult to grasp and to appreciate. And so Paul's great prayer is that we would grasp that and we would know it. I do not think that there is anything that's more wonderful for you to know or for me to know than that 
God loves us. The theologian Karl Barth, who I wouldn't necessarily always recommend, was on a uh, tour of the United States. And now Barth's written this thing called Church Dogmatics. And if you can read it, you're just dumb, wasting all that time. But no, it's, it's a huge, massive, massive thing of, of um, theology and so on. And a group of reporters approached Karl Barth and they asked him, could you summarize your faith in a couple of sentences? And they waited for these words of profound wisdom. And probably the best thing that Bart ever said uh, was his answer. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. And that really is it. That you, you will not know or hear any better news than that. Now, the interesting thing about this coming here is that, like many of Paul's letters, the first half is teaching about theology, it's about Jesus Christ, it's about what God has done, it's about what has happened to us. And then the second half is the practice. Now what you will find is that Christians increasingly want to hear, tell me, tell me the practical stuff, tell me the practical stuff. Tell me how to pray, tell me uh, how to live as a Christian. And the trouble with that is we, be, we become we've very discouraged because we find it very difficult to do. What we've really got to begin with is, it should be, tell me about Jesus, tell me about Jesus, tell me about Jesus, and then tell me how I respond. That's the, the, the key thing. So, he's saying we need to know God's love before we can go on and do the things. So, we're going to ask this question, who's the church for and what is our purpose? We're going to look at it in the light of this doxology, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think. I'm going to keep it... Um, fairly straightforward and simple and I think short but I've noticed that whenever I promise to keep something short it somehow seems to get extended so uh, I'll, but I will try and keep it that way because I think it's it, it, it's pretty clear what is here and pretty wonderful and I don't want to um, kill it by a superfluity there's a great word a superfluity of words um, why do we pray because God hears and answers our prayer more than all we ask or imagine. Now, stop and think about what that actually means. Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. God is able to do more than we can ask. God is able to do more than we can imagine. Can you ask something that is greater than God is able to do? Can you think of something that is greater than God is able to do? That's impossible. Infinitely abundantly, more than we ask or think. Paul uses two Greek words that are different, but obviously very similar. Dunamio and dunamis. Dunamio is where he says he's able. He he can do that, and according to his power, his dunamis, we get the term dynamite from that. And he plays on these two words. And he's talking about the power of God. Now, what he's doing is he's referring back to earlier parts of this chapter, or of this book. Uh, verse 16, for example, he says, I pray that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit. That's the power of God in the Holy Spirit. But if you go back into chapter 1 and verse 19, you read about 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. What power is it? It's the power which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And what Paul has already taught in Ephesians, and what he's bringing to bear here, God is powerful, God is able to do these things. He's saying, this is the power of God. You know what it is. It's the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. A God who can raise someone from the dead. That is an, an, an incredible an incredibly fantastic and great power. And he said, it's a power that's already at work in you. Because if you're in chapter 2, verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Why get frustrated at your friends or get frustrated at your family or get frustrated at people you're talking to and and you're talking to them about Jesus And they don't want to know. You say, well, just believe. But the trouble is they're dead. And it's as ludicrous me going out onto the street right now and talking to people who have no interest or no knowledge of Jesus Christ who are dead in their sins and trespasses. It's as ludicrous to me to go to them and ask them to believe as it is for me to go out into that graveyard and ask people to rise out of those graves. So, some mega hyper-Calvinists will say, well, don't do anything. Don't say. But no, we believe God's power is at work through the gospel. But we need to know that. It takes God's power to change someone's heart. It takes God's power. You won't even see the kingdom of God, said Jesus to Nicodemus, unless you are born from above, unless you are born again. But that's the amazing thing that Paul says here in Ephesians. He says, I pray that you would know the love of God. I pray that you would know his power at work in your life. And then he says, but that power is already at work. That power that it is at work within us, according to his power that is at work within us. The power of the God that created the universe, the power of the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the power of the God who brought us to a living and saving faith in Jesus is already at work within us. Now, My immediate response to that is, I don't feel it. And God is not restricted or limited by my feeling. Sometimes we're so close to something, we don't really see it. The power, as Paul has said earlier, that creates one humanity in the church. The power that energizes the ministry of the Apostle Paul. That power is at work within us. I remember hearing a couple of men having a discussion once about the power of God. And one man was asked, what, do you, what, do you, what are you seeking power for? And he said, I want power to heal. I want power to be able to speak in tongues. I want power to, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be a dynamic preacher. And he went on a list of things like that. And the second man was asked, what are you seeking power for? And he said, I want power to live as a Christian. It's really hard to be a Christian. It's really hard to live as a Christian. But Paul says to the Ephesians, you're in a tough situation. There's trouble in your church. But God's power is already at work within you. Now, he goes beyond that. In fact, these two verses are kind of, I swallowed a dictionary tonight, so they're superlatives. 
they're going on and on and on and on. Just he, he falls over himself in trying to explain how extraordinary and how wonderful this power is and how great this God is. He says, the God who can do more, who can do hyper beyond what you ask. Not the boldest human prayer, nor the greatest power of human imagination can tie God's ability to act. Now, here's the logic, and follow this through. It sounds a bit repetitive, because that's because it is. He says, first of all, God is able to do whatever believers ask in prayer. When you come and you pray to God, you are not praying to a God who lacks the power. But, he says, it's even more than that. He is able to do what we fail to ask, but what we think. We don't have because we don't ask. But what we desire, what we feel, God is able to do that. But he doesn't stop there. He is able to do all we ask or all we think. He is able to do above all we ask or all we think. And he goes even further. He adds another word where he says he is able to do abundantly above all we ask or we think. And then he runs out of words, really. And he just says he's able to do more than abundantly above all we ask and all that we think. And then he still doesn't stop. And he says he's able to do infinitely more abundantly than we ask or than we think. This, he says, is the power that is at work within us. Now, you have to stop and think about that just for a minute. Because the devil is always causing us to doubt God. And we are always projecting our fears and our doubts onto God. If, Lord, you can do this. If, Lord, you can do that. Would God want to do this? And so on. We, we struggle with believing in the almighty power of God. And how do, how do I know that? Well, I know it because I look in myself and I see the state of the world and I see the state of this city and I see um, so many problems and so many difficulties and I say, how do we reach people? How do we tell people the gospel? How can people be changed? And when I look at myself, when I look at you, when I look at the church, when I look at the society... I just say, no, it's possible. It can be done. It can't be done. But Paul says, stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at the church. Look to the power of God. You think what you want to ask. You cannot ask anything that is too great for God. Not only that, you can't even imagine something that is too great for God. See, I find it extraordinary when I discuss and debate with people how many non-Christians are prepared to say, well, I will believe in God if this, 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 and this. And what they're doing is they're sitting in judgment upon God. And God, God basically says, who do you think you are? You can't sit in judgment upon me. He is able to do abundantly above all we ask or think. The trouble is we limit ourselves to what we ask or think. It's the power that is at work within us. 
I and you very often limit God. Even those who claim to believe in the power of God will very often limit God. But God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing. And we have to bow our knees, we have to bow our hearts, we have to bow our wills and just simply say to the Lord, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Remember what that was said? Where a, a man came to the disciples after they'd seen extraordinary miracles and he came to them and he had a son who was demon-possessed and they couldn't do anything about it. And Jesus uh, rebuked his disciples and rebuked the generation for the lack of faith they had in him. And the man said, Lord, I believe, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's actually a great, great prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. You, you stop, you think about the things that are concerning you just now, you think about all that's going on in your life, and to trust in God means to accept what Paul is saying here, that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think. You can take as big a shopping list as you want to God, you're, still even, you're not even beginning uh, to get where and what God can do. That's my, my hope for my own life. It's my hope for uh, the church as well. It's we can um, plan things and we can do lots and lots of different things. But without the power of God, without the dunamis of God, without the, the God at work, then it's pointless. But actually with God at work, then nothing is pointless. And from that, he then goes on, because of this, to him who's able to do this, because of who God is, he's saying, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the doxology. Who is the church for? What is the church for? Does the church exist to evangelize? Does the church exist to fellowship? Does the church exist to worship? Well, in a way, yes, to all those things, but in another way, that's not an adequate answer. Here is why the church exists. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. We exist to bring glory to God, and we exist to bring that glory by being the bride of Christ in and through Jesus Christ. We, this doxology tells us that we acknowledge and we praise that which properly, properly belongs to God. That God is exalted, that God has a status and an honor that is way, way, way beyond anything that we could imagine. The Bible will speak about the radiance of God's holiness or the beauty of God's holiness or the glory of God's power the riches of his power in chapter 1, verse 17 of Ephesians, the father of glory, chapter 3, verse 16, the riches of his glory. And we exist to glorify God in the church, which is the body of Christ, and it's the primary sphere of God's present activity. We exist to glorify God in Jesus Christ, 
We exist to be the very one upon whom, or he is the very one upon whom our activity and our very existence depend. Now that's a big, big difference. The church, we do not exist for the glory of any human leaders. We do not exist for the benefit of denominations. We do not exist for the self-glory of the church. Everything has got to be pointing towards Jesus Christ. I think these words teach us the words before and this doxology itself that the church will become more what it ought to be, the vehicle for the glory of God as it experiences more of the one who mediates God's purposes through salvation. In other words, as we experience more of Jesus, as we experience more of Christ's presence through the Spirit, and as we experience more of what he's asked right at the end of verse 19, more of the love that surpasses knowledge. It's easy in one sense for us to seek glory for ourselves. It's easy for us to become extremely frustrated with the church. It's easy for us to have kind of lesser goals that we never reach. But what we are really wanting is this. We want people to be aware of the church in such a way that supposing they were to go out into the Sidlows and see the Northern Lights one evening, supposing they were to go out on the River Tay and see God's glory in creation, that it would be almost as nothing compared with the glory that they would see of Jesus Christ at work in his church. We don't see very often the church as glorious because what we see is ourselves. What we see uh, is other people's sins. But I honestly believe that the church is the primary reason for people believing when they see the glory of Jesus Christ revealed in the lives and the hearts and the minds of his people. I had a lot of arguments against Christians before I became one thing that was hardest to argue against was the reality of Christ in other people's lives. It was easy to see the hypocrisy, but the reality of Christ was a very, very hard thing to go against. We want and we hope and we pray that Jesus will be at work in, in this fellowship, in his church throughout the city, and in his church throughout this country. We need to keep remembering when we come to worship that we are worshiping a God who is able to do more than we can ask or think. And that's why our primary focus in the church has to be on God. I know that sounds obvious to people, but it's very, very easy to slip away from that. It's very easy, both corporately and individually, to make our primary focus ourselves. Lord, make me feel better. Lord, help me with this. Lord, deal with this. You notice that in prayer. In prayer, we're very quick, we very quickly come along to, um, Lord, we pray for this person who's sick. We pray for that person. We pray for ourselves. We pray for our financial needs. We pray for all the different things. And all those things are right to pray for. But if they are all that we pray, if they are even the main emphasis of our prayer, they are wrong. 
We have to pray that God would be glorified in sickness, that God would be glorified through the hardships that we are going through, that God would be glorified in his church, that God would be glorified in this world. We will, over the next few weeks, we'll go on to look at Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, where there, there's so much practical teaching. But the background to it all is this doxology, that it is to God that the glory would be. You sometimes wonder, what should I pray? What should I pray? What does God want? Well, God wants to be glorified through Christ in his people, the church. That's a a great prayer to pray. Uh, Let me just pray just now as we finish. Lord, we come to you and we come with a measure of sorrow and repentance. We come because we speak of you as glorious, and yet our lives are so focused on ourselves. Everything is about me and us. Lord, help us to move beyond that. Help us to lift our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Help us to know the love that passes knowledge that is beyond knowing. Help us, O Lord, to be strengthened with power in our inner being as Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And may it be that in all things we grant you glory. Lord, we need to see that your power is already at work within us. We marvel at it. The God who spoke and the universe came into being. The God who spoke and, and who continues to speak. And through that speaking, your spirit is at work amongst us and many, many people. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen and sustain us in this coming week. We ask that you would guide us and that you would help us in all things. And may all things be for your glory. And I pray especially... For those who are Christians here who are discouraged and wounded and hurt and battered and bruised and who just feel such despair or such discouragement, Lord, lift their eyes out of the mess of their own circumstances to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I pray for any amongst us who don't know you, Lord, Let your beauty be upon us. Let us see a glimpse of your glory that we might be changed. For we ask it in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk that's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.